Father in heaven, <clears throat> I thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace. Now speak to us, Lord. <clears throat> Help us to keep our eyes on the most important thing. There's lots of things. Help us to keep our eyes on that which matters most. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to jump right in with the text. Revelation chapter 14, <clears throat> beginning in verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast or his image and receive his mark in his forehead or his hand, the same shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. A story. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, to steal a line from Charles Dickens. And this particular Dickens line, published 29 years before the event to which I want to talk to you about, well describes the situation in which our Seventh-day Adventist four parents found themselves as they journeyed to the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota in the month of October the year 1888, 132 years ago. Forty-four years had passed since the great disappointment had crushed the imminent hope of the Millerites who believed that Jesus would come October 22, 1844. By the way, that's exactly 176 years ago from last Thursday. And by October of 1888, a full 25 years had passed since the Seventh-day Adventists had officially organized in the year 1863, four years after the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species, if you remember us talking about that a few weeks back when we spoke about worship the Creator God. You remember the Seventh-day Adventists, of course, that collection of Millerites and others who still believed Jesus was coming soon and who had added the Sabbath and a handful of other important teachings to this conviction. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times for them, a time when everything they had believed and taught seemed to be coming together, yet they themselves seemed to be coming apart. Some of the brightest lights from the past had gone out. 1872 had seen the passing of Joseph Bates, the enigmatic old sea captain who had been one of the first to embrace the Sabbath and who by his persistence was key in convincing James and Ellen White, two other key founders, to begin keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. Then in 1881, just seven years prior, James White, a tireless laborer, publishing pioneer, key church organizer, and early general conference president, finally wore out and died. And in 1883, just five years before, John Nevins Andrews, the church's greatest theologian of the day, and one of the first Adventist overseas missionaries, 
also was laid to rest in Basel, Switzerland, far too early at the age of 54. For context, that's one year younger than me. Oh, how the church would have loved a stabilizing word from each one of these men. Now, some of the original leaders were still around, men like Uriah Smith and George I. Butler, and of course, Ellen White, the other half of the white team, was still on the job. Some of the original leaders remained, but there were some new voices making their presence felt within the Adventist church, though none more prominent than two relatively young men. Alonzo T. Jones, a high-powered, high-energy, highly confrontational former military man who was, in 1888, serving as the co-editor of the Adventist publication Signs of the Times, and Ellet J. Wagner, a second-generation Adventist, the son of J.H. Wagner, a prominent evangelist, editor, and author of the early Adventist church. Now, this is actually quite remarkable. We're just 25 years in, and we're already talking about one of the first second-generation leaders to emerge. E.J. Wagner was a brilliant man who trained as a medical doctor, but abandoned that career to pursue ministry and evangelism, becoming co-editor of the signs with A.T. Jones. They were relatively young men in the year 1888, A.T. Jones being 38 years old and Wagner 33. Give a little context on that. Pastor Jeremy is 38 years old. And some of the other pastors, Pastor Juan and Pastor Justin, are closer to the 33 number. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Not just because of the changes underway within the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventists, but also because of the wider context in which the Adventists found themselves that fateful October in 1888. You see, it looked to them as if everything they'd been expecting for at least the past 20-some years was about to come to pass. They all thought Jesus was about to come. After all, it was all coming together just like the three angels had said it would. In their eyes, the first angel had flown in the days of the Millerite movement with the message that the hour of God's judgment had come, and ever since that time for the past 44 years, the judgment had been underway to culminate in the soon second coming of Jesus. The message of the second angel, again, in their understanding at the time, had been to a large degree fulfilled in the closing days of the Millerite movement when the churches of that time had thrown out of fellowship the Millerite believers slash agitators, it depends on what side you were on, who were, with their claims about the soon coming of Jesus, completely disrupting church business as usual. It's really hard when half the congregation says Jesus is coming and the other half wants to start a building project. And the failure of the churches after the great disappointment to embrace the Seventh-day Sabbath truth was just further evidence in the eyes of the Seventh-day Adventists of this day that those churches were in fact Babylon and that they had in fact fallen. But now, 
Events in the land were pointing to the fulfillment of the third angel's message, or at least fulfillment of the message as most of them understood the message. By 1888, most Adventists understood the third angel's message and by extension, Revelation chapter 13, to be saying that a day was soon at hand when the fallen churches of Babylon would once and for all seal their doom by former, formally establishing, by means of civil authority, Sunday as the Sabbath and persecuting, eventually to the point of death, all who would seek to keep the seventh day Sabbath. And as far-fetched as this might sound to some today, in the fall of 1888, it seemed more like a matter of days before this inevitability became reality. Many states at that time had Sunday sacredness laws. Now, just, just as a relic and as an aside from that, when I first moved to Florida about nine and a half years ago, it was still uh, not allowed, it was against the law for you to buy uh, beer or wine in a grocery store on Sunday. Does anybody remember this? These were leftover relics of a time when there was a, there was a whole list of Sunday sacredness laws. In 1882, Willie White, Ellen's son, got arrested in California, of all places, for running the Adventist press on Sunday. Throughout the 1880s, Arkansas and Tennessee were places where Seventh-day Adventists were multiple times arrested and forced to serve on chain gangs as common criminals for alleged Sunday sacredness abuse. Then, in 1887, Two prominent Christian groups, the Prohibition Party and the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, joined forces with the National Reform Association in promoting national Sunday laws in an effort to promote national morality. And then, as the capper to the whole deal, in the year 1888 itself, Roman Catholic Cardinal James Gibbons joined hands with American Protestants in promoting a petition to the United States Congress on behalf of National Sunday legislation. We lose track of these stories, don't we? We forget these things happened. Surely the stage was set. And everything was about to come to pass the way they always thought it would. It was the best of times because Jesus was about to come. But it was the worst of times since persecution was at hand. And if ever it would seem the time for rock-solid unity amongst the Adventists, surely this was it. So why was it now that these two young guns, these rascals from California... Why was it now that they were threatening to throw everything into disarray? We'll come back to this story. As we talk about this third angel's message. Now to date, as we've talked about it, I've suggested to you, without actually reading the text, I've suggested to you that the third angel is giving us a warning. And the warning is that we would associate, our, associate ourselves with the victory of God and not with the failure of man. 
Now, when I read this to you, that might not seem immediately obvious to you. But I want to suggest to you that the message of the third angel establishes a very clear contrast between two groups of people. Now, I want you to see if you can notice this as I read it to you. So here we go. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. All right, let's break this down. So this passage in verse 9 begins with, with a, a language logical function. It has an if-then statement in it. Now, if you've studied logic or spoken English, you know how if and then works, right? You say, if you show up late, you'll have to walk in after everybody's already in their seats. Okay, yeah, well, that's how if-then works, right? So, if the initial condition is fulfilled, the follow-up condition will occur. So, a logical statement means a certain outcome is the certain result of a certain decision. And this is the form in which the first part of this message takes place. It says, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the then is implied here, then the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So, so the clear construct here is there is a decision that must be made. And if you make the decision this way, here's your outcome. So this is the construct of this whole message here. Now, we don't have time today to do an extensive study on Revelation chapter 13, which deals with this idea of the mark and this mark that is to be received on the forehead and on the hand. So here's what I need you to do. It's not going to be key to what I want to tell you today, but I need to just go with me on this and then check me afterward, okay? So go and do your research. Go and do your homework on this. But I don't have time to develop the whole thing. But go with me on this today. Here's what I want to suggest to you. It will be a dreadful experience for everyone who looks to the failure of man for hope or meaning or purpose or direction or salvation. What I want to suggest to you is being said in this passage is that anyone who looks to the failure of man instead of to the victory of God for hope, meaning, purpose, direction, or salvation will end up with a wretched existence and at the judgment find themselves alienated from God. 
Now, let's develop this a little bit more. Contained within this, this message of this third angel is worship language. Did you catch it? It said, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead and his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So it's, it's worship context. Why is that relevant? Well, do you remember what the first angel says? It calls us to worship as well, doesn't it? It says, worship him who created the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. So what we have here is a contrast. The first angel is describing how we are to worship. The third angel is saying, but for those who will not worship in this way and choose to worship something else, here is the outcome of that choice. There's another interesting connection between the second angel and the third angel, and it's associated with the drinking of wine of wrath. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, the second angel points this out very strongly, but there are forces in the world that would very much like you to drink their wine. In our day, sometimes we call it drinking the Kool-Aid. They would like you to drink their wine. And this is what the second angel tells us, Revelation 14, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There are forces in the world right now that want you to drink their wine, and they will present it to you in various ways. But if what they are pushing on you is not centered in the Word of God, it is centered in the failure of man. And if you give in to it, and if you drink it, it will drive you mad. And there's parallel to this then in the third angel, this message. The one who drinks the wine that Babylon pushes on them shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, now notice this language, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Now there's, there's a, a reference here that we don't get in our day because in our day, uh, the idea of watered down wine is uh, an anathema. But in that time, and in the time of the ancient Greeks, wine was not drunk straight. You mixed water with it. And in fact, there's an interesting story about one of the kings of Sparta, the city-state of Sparta, who the Spartans tried to do away with because they determined he had gone mad because the, the, the presumed result of drinking unmixed wine is that you go mad. They had determined that he had gone mad because he'd been hanging out with the Macedonians who drink unmixed wine. And therefore, this king had lost his mind. So this reference contained in here, in the Greek language, in this, is saying that what gets poured out is unmixed and will cause madness. There's another thing in the second angel's message that's very important here. At the end of it, it says, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the language of adultery. This is the language of breaking trust, 
of violation of relationship, of denial of loyalty, of paying attention to the wrong things. Now, there's a parallel in the Bible, and you'll see it lots of places, between the idea of adultery and unfaithfulness in worship. The entire book of Hosea is themed on this idea. The concept that in the same way to break relationship with each other in a, in a means that we call adultery is the parallel to us breaking worship relationship with God and worshiping other gods. So this concept is brought in here and this connection. Now, now hang on to that because I want to develop that in the context of what is said in the rest of this message to the third angel. But in order to do that, I want to back up for just a second, and I want you to remember uh, a message that we heard by Pastor Bernie Anderson here some eight, nine years ago, something like that. It was a while ago. And in that message, Pastor Bernie said, most of you believe Jesus saves. But do you also believe Jesus satisfies? Okay, I'll, I'll read that again. Most of you believe Jesus saves, but do you believe Jesus satisfies? Now, I want to develop that for a minute, and you're going to see how this concept shows up in the message of the third angel. So, so here we go. There are those who don't believe Jesus saves. Now, I, I am not put by God in a position of judging who is saved, who goes to heaven, who, who is a part of God's kingdom in eternity, what takes place in anybody's life. So nothing I'm going to say is a judgment that is binding on anyone. I'm just going to point something out, all right? And what I want to point out is if you were here the Sabbath that we talked about worship the God who created the heavens and the earth, you'll remember that I played a short video by Bill Nye, the science guy. And if you will remember, in that video, he talks about how he does not believe in the Creator God and does not, he doesn't specifically say this, but by extension, doesn't believe in the concept of Jesus as Savior. Now, what I want to suggest to you is this is an example of someone who does not believe Jesus saves. And it is a decision that has taken place in the mind. There are many people in this day who do not believe, and it is a decision that has taken place in the mind. You remember we talked about the ichthus, the, the symbol of the fish that was the perfect acronym for the identity of Christ. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And then we also talked about the Darwin fish that some people put. That is intentional mental denial of the idea that Jesus saves. But then there is another reality. And that is those who don't deny with their mind that Jesus saves, but deny it with their lives. And what Pastor Bernie said to us that day is that this is the greatest danger for us in this room. Because there's very few people who don't believe in God at all who would waste their time to come here. But there could be people who do believe Jesus saves, 
but don't believe Jesus satisfies. And therefore, though their mind is aligned with the concept of Jesus, their lifestyle is aligned with a different law. It's not aligned with the law of God. Now, did you notice in this message of the third angel, it says, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. What I want to suggest to you is this is right at the heart of this idea of Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies. You can deny it at the fundamental level and not believe that Jesus saves and thus receive the mark here. Or you can deny it at the practical level and receive it here. There are many who in mind want to believe, but in life betray that the Lord and his revealed will really will bring the best joy and the greatest joy to living. And this really is the crisis, isn't it? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe Jesus died to save us from our sins. It's another thing to believe, I also believe that living according to the commandments of God will bring me the most joy and satisfaction I can know. You see, here's the great challenge in it, and it all goes back to the concept of God as our creator. If God created us and thus then gave us law for our good, should we not then align ourselves with the direction he has appointed us? Many question the commandments of God and try to live according to the ways of man. There are some strange things which now pass for morality that find no basis in the Word of God. This is Babylon. This is any attempt by humans to order and control the chaos of the world without God. This is also any attempt by humans to find their best life contrary to what the Lord has said. Babylon is fallen. For those who believe that Jesus saves, but not that he satisfies, they can expect a long life of drinking the maddening wine of spiritual adultery. Now, let me use an example here from literal adultery that I think brings this home really well. There are people who've been married who reach a point where they literally hate their spouse. And so they have an affair because they hate their spouse. That took place here, right? But there are people living who really love their spouse. They just don't believe their spouse satisfies. So they engage another relationship because they think they're not satisfied. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter which way, right? Unfaithfulness equals unfaithfulness. The outcome is the same 
for those who deny as it is for those who never fully embrace. You are not truly living in the victory of God until you believe that Jesus both saves and satisfies. He doesn't just take care of your sin. He also shows you the way. So here's the contrast. There actually is a group who believes this. I read you the first part of Revelation 14, uh, verses 9 through 11, this first part of this third angel's message, describing what happens to those who either deny it with their, with their mind or with their life. But there's an additional comment at the very end, and it goes like this. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Faith of Jesus, Jesus saves. Commandments of God, Jesus satisfies. The life I live that I want is the one aligned with the commandments and centered in the faith of Jesus. This is the victory of God. This is living in the victory of God. Now, there's a very important word at the first part of this verse. And it's translated here, patience. It says, here is the patience of the saints. But the word is actually the word hupomone. And you've heard me say that word here before. And in fact, next Sabbath is all about that word. Because that word appears in a lot of places throughout the New Testament. And, and it means patient endurance. It means the strength and the ability to hang on. But we're going to talk about that next week. So here's what I want you to understand. The failure of man brings torment to our lives. The victory of God makes us able to patiently endure until he comes again. When we live in the victory of God, we have what we need to make it. But when we live in the failure of man, our life is one disaster after another. Now let me take you back to the story we started with. The year is 1888, and the Adventists are in an uproar. In their mind, all the details were in place, all the predictions were being fulfilled, and every event was occurring just as they expected. Yes, indeed, they had it all figured out, charted, detailed, and settled. Everything that is except the most important thing. Does this ever happen to us? You see, they had fallen into the same trap that all humans, even those on a mission from God, seemed to fall into. They had lost sight of who the whole story is about and had started to put their confidence in themselves. God had blessed them. He'd given them light. He'd given them an understanding and a context for their day beyond any other group at the time, yet the blessing itself was in danger of becoming the curse, for they had begun to put their confidence in the light they had. They were putting their confidence in the understanding they had. They're putting their confidence in their privileged context and not centering their hope in Jesus. Ironically, 
the insight that they had gained about the three angels was no longer to them a means of entering into the victory of God, but was rapidly becoming their own private fallen Babylon where they trusted more in their own understanding than in the Lord. And so it was to this external crisis that they found themselves experiencing that God sent them a heart crisis. Not for the purpose of destroying his people, but so that they who had come so far by faith might be called back again to Jesus, their first love, before doctrine, before prophecy, before end-time propositions, before current events. Their first love had to be Jesus. Now, here's the thing. The actual details of the argument that nearly tore them apart are not all that important to this message. It was a, it was a classic Adventist fight. It was a fight over the meaning of the law in the book of Galatians. With the traditionalists seeing it as the ceremonial law and these rogues out of California claiming it included the Ten Commandments. It's interesting what is enough for us to just really get out the gloves and go. In the end, Ellen White, who attempted to serve as kind of a referee for the fight, would chasten all parties involved for their aggressive spirit. Characterized by a non-Adventist reporter for the local paper, the Minneapolis Journal, as a people who, and I love this, this is such a good description of Adventists, people who tackle a difficult problem in theology with about the same industry that an earnest man would assail a cord of wood. In other words, they just start hacking away. We're energetic, but sometimes we swing the axes at each other, don't we? So what had they lost sight of? Why did they get together in this incredible time and end up in a fight? And what does that have to do with the third angel's message? Well, I will let Ellen White tell you in her own words. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. Now, what that line means is that's Jesus saves. Okay? It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. That's Jesus satisfies. Do you see it there? Confidence in Jesus for salvation and belief that life according to his purpose is the life we want to live. Jesus saves, Jesus satisfies. Now catch this next line. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits and his changeless love for the human family. All right, so now we're getting to the third angel part. All power is given into his hands, Jesus, that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness, the victory of God, to the helpless human agent, the failure of man. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. Now catch this line. It is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Now, here's the challenge in that. 
When we read the third angel's message, and we've done this historically, and it even happens down to our day, our temptation is to think that what is most important about this message is the content in this thing that's related somehow to this group's going to do that, and that group's going to do that, and this is going to happen on this timeline, and this is going to happen on this time, and I don't care what you put together, you'll never create a better scenario than they had in 1888. But in the midst of that, God said, yes, but the bigger point is not to focus on the failure of man, but to focus on the victory of God through Jesus Christ. And if the end of our preaching is nothing more than charts and figures and timelines and explanations and current events, then we've missed the point. Because the point is the victory in Jesus. The third angel didn't come along so that you would know every detail about what was going to happen. The third angel came along so that you wouldn't make the mistake of aligning yourself with the failure of man when God has thrown heaven open to you that you might be received into glory and live a life worth living. It really is all about Jesus. Jesus saves, Jesus satisfies. So I have this challenge. Sometimes I get a little wise in my own eyes. Sometimes I think I have everything figured out. Sometimes I think I know what's gonna happen. Sometimes I feel like maybe God ought to take my advice. You ever been there? But there's a proverb that the Lord has given me, and he pulls it out and puts it in front of my eyes with quite a bit of frequency, and it goes like this, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Ironically, our fixation on knowing everything can lead us to the point where we become a part of the failure of man. But if we keep our trust in the Lord, we keep letting him lead us, we don't let our gaze slip away from Jesus, we stay focused. That's when he makes our paths straight. We're going to talk more about this third angel, and we're going, to, we're going to break down some more of the details, and you're going to hear some of the things over the next couple of weeks that maybe you've heard before. But before we go there, I just need you to know that the core of this message is make sure you choose to be part of God's victory and not part of the failure of man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we ask that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We want to be a part of the victory that God has won. Jesus, 
is the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. We put our faith in him. We worship the God of creation, and we believe that the hour of judgment has come. We're turning our backs on the failure of the world, both in our minds and in our practice. And it is our desire to be the patient saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We cannot do it without your Holy Spirit. Send your Spirit that we will, in our hearts, crown Jesus as Lord of all. In his name we pray. Amen.